Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 175 of the show, and it's Monday, December the 18th, 2023, as I record this, earlier than usual, because by the time this goes live, I will be in sunny Lucca, or perhaps rainy Lucca, in glorious Tuscany. Yes, Italy is one of my spiritual homes. I love that place. Um, we're on, on holiday with my family, and it is actually a holiday, so um, don't expect me to do any work while I'm away. Uh, it is a somewhat quixotic choice, perhaps, to spend our family summer holiday in winter in Italy, but that's what happens when you ask your kids where they want to go for their holidays. So I will be less responsive than usual to emails, etc., but we do have the podcast interviews ready to go on the usual schedule, so no worries there. I am recently returned from a simply fabulous trip to Lisbon and Alconchel, Spain, for the Panoplia event. I've written up a blog post about it on my blog at guywindsor.net. I won't read you the whole URL because it's very long and complicated, but if you go to guywindsor.net, you can read all about the Panoplia. It's the first blog post in the list of blog posts. Speaking of travel, my current plans for 2024 are... On February the 17th, I'm supposed to be teaching a pole arms and armoured combat seminar in Helsinki, Finland, run by the Gladiolus School of Arms. On March the 2nd and 3rd, and on the 9th and 10th, so two consecutive weekends, I should be in Querétaro, Mexico, for a Fiore Intensive run by the Shikai International uh, Martial Arts School. Then on April the 6th and 7th, because apparently jet lag is for beginners, I should be in Singapore doing a Fury Longsword seminar on the Saturday and a Rapier seminar on the Sunday for the Pan-Historical European Martial Arts Society, or FEMAS, as they are affectionately known. Then from Singapore, I'm hopping down to Wellington, New Zealand for a Rapier seminar on the Saturday and a Fury seminar on the Sunday. That's April 13th and 14th, which is run by Agat Ponder Sutton, an old friend of mine. So, all of these trips are in the confirmed that we haven't bought flights yet stage, so watch this space for updates. I do expect them all to run as planned, or I wouldn't bother you with them. Um, and if you're in the area, you presumably know the organisers, which is why I mentioned them, so please ask the organisers for specific details, such as location of the seminar, sign-up details, that sort of thing. I don't handle the sort of logistics side of things myself. I just show up and teach my classes and off we go. Now, between now and the next newsletter, there's some kind of internationally popular holiday season thing, something to do with logs or angels or something. You'll figure it out. Sorry, couldn't resist. So however you choose to celebrate it, I hope you have a wonderful time and are looking forward to the year ahead. The days are getting longer. The sun is returning to us. Hurrah. Unless, of course, you're down under in New Zealand or Australia or somewhere like that. In which case, don't worry. The heat waves should abate sometime and glorious winter shall be returning to you. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Alex Evans, who has a Master's of Music in Historical Performance from the Peabody Institute at Johns Hopkins University. And she's a professional performer and teacher of historical music, founder of Falsa Musica, and has even fenced rapier in the SCA, so we do have a bit of plausible sword-relatedness. So, without further ado, Alex, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I am in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is like a little suburb just north of D.C., um, kind of conveniently located between D.C. and Baltimore, um, so I've got access to both cities. Originally, I'm from Austin, Texas, uh, and we're going back there in like later today for the holiday. Oh, lovely. Yes, we caught you just in time. Yes. <laughs> totally good. Um, now, I, of course, know exactly where you live because I have stayed there several times. <laughs> right. And so actually the first question, which is not on the list, so this is a totally unfair <laughs> question, is, is David's workshop still tidy? It is still tidy. And he's oh been God. using it so much more. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, I thought, well, maybe I'd need to scold him if he's like no, not used it. No, or, no. Quite the contrary. Excellent. 
Glad to hear it. Good. Um, so back on back on topic. Um, <laughs> how did you get into historical music? Um, well, I've always been into music. I've my I've come from a very musical family, and I've been singing for as long as I can remember. Um, historical music specifically caught me uh, when I was in my early mid twenties. I was in a graduate program, which I did not complete. Um, not the one that I did complete uh, for Slavic literature. Okay. And it was a bad fit. And at the time I was also uh, fighting swords in the SCA. Um, and I, there are these people in the SCA who we call bards. And those are the people who tell stories and sing songs and play instruments and stuff like that. And being very musical, I was interested in, in what they were doing. And I noticed that what they were doing was sometimes good and sometimes a lot of fun, but it very rarely sounded anything like what medieval music probably sounded like. I mean, it, it sounded like, you know, folk music or Celtic music maybe, or sometimes, you know, Boy Scout songs that you might sing around a campfire, but not particularly, like, I, I don't think that this is what troubadours actually sounded like. Okay. So, I'll, sorry, I have a quick question. How, yes. what make how do you think troubadours should have sounded and how did you know that what you were hearing in the SCA was not how it should be? I just thought that it was, it was implausible that you could go to a boy scout camp and hear the same types of music that were being sung a thousand years ago. Um, I knew, you know, I mean, I knew that music had changed a lot, right? The music that was sung in the, 16 and 1700s is not the same music that's being sung in the same form today. So why would that be the case for music that was sung in 1200, right? Yeah. Um, And having been said, I did not have a very good idea of what it should sound like. So I decided to figure out like, what would this sound like? Um, And I, at the time, so today there's a lot of really great historical music being made in the SCA at the time. I was sort people would discourage me from, from pursuing it. They said that, um, you know, well, music in the middle ages sounded really weird and, you know, modern, it would just not, it's not something that a modern audience would enjoy. It would sound bad. They used a lot of buzzy instruments and it's just weird. Um, and that just made me want to pursue it even more. And as I said, I was in this graduate program that was not a great fit. So in order to distract myself from all of that, I spent a lot of time in this wonderful academic library pawing through books of music theory and music history, uh, trying to figure out what it might have sounded like. And then I discovered some ensembles that were doing their best to recreate uh, the sound of what it might have sounded like. Um, and the rest is history. That kind of that kind of hooked me. The rest is literally history. Now, okay, I have, yes. a, couple, <laughs> I have a couple of questions. Um, what made Slavic literature a bad fit? And what gave you the courage to quit it? That's a, those are good questions. Um, I majored in Russian as an undergrad and loved it. Um, I just spent all my time learning a fun language and reading great literature. Um, and then after undergrad, I became a teacher. I was teaching middle school, which is, was a lot of fun and very rewarding in a lot of ways, but it was getting boring. Um, just because of the content of what I was teaching. I thought if I had to just teach the steps of the writing process for the rest of my life, I'm going to go insane. I need to do something that's a little bit more um, cerebral, right? A little bit more intellectually challenging for myself. Um, And so I thought, okay, like, what do I like to do? What am I good at? Ah, Russian, let's do more of that. But then once I got to Slavic literature at the graduate level, it became sort of, I don't know, like it was sort of a... um, there was a lot, there was pressure to, to publish and to come up with ways of looking at the literature that no one had come up with before. And for some people, I think that works really well. For me, it felt a little bit artificial. Yeah. Um, and it just, it wasn't, wasn't a good fit. It was it's a great fit for some people. Um, it's a good program. Everybody in the program was lovely. Um, it just, it, wasn't what I wanted to do. What gave me the courage to quit actually was sort of having an off ramp. So my husband, then boyfriend, um, was in law school, graduated from law school in the middle of the recession, there were no jobs. And he took the foreign service exam, and passed and got into the foreign service. And I was like, what are you doing? I don't want to follow you around being a housewife. 
to a diplomat <laughs> for the rest of my life. This is a terrible idea. Um, but then he explained to me that like, you can take the foreign service exam too, and they will do their best to post us in the same place. And at the time that was true. They're no longer really doing that so much. Um, and so I took the foreign service exam and I also passed. And so I had this opportunity to go and do really interesting work in a part of the world that I was really interested in. Um, eventually they sent us to Ukraine at a very interesting time in history. Um, and that I, I guess that's what gave me the courage is just having something else really cool to do. Okay. So you quit your, um, master's degree in Slavic studies to Mm -hmm. go into the state department. And I should maybe point out for listeners that the husband we're talking about is David Biggs, who has actually been on the show and I'll put a link to his episode. So that if people want to hear about the whole state department thing from his perspective, they can, they can do that. So see if our stories line up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so did you enjoy working in the State Department? I did. Um, okay. What our, was it like? First po- yeah, it was, our first post was in Ottawa, Canada, which was lovely because it's Ottawa, Canada, and it's full of e- like wonderful people and it's easy to make friends and it was great. We were doing interesting work. Our second post was Kiev, Ukraine, which was also amazing. Kiev is an amazing place full of lovely people. We were there during Euromaidan, so we were not bored. Sorry, um, you were there during what? Euromaidan. What's so this that? is sort of in around 2015, 2014, 2015, when um, there were all the protests and the Yanukovych regime was sort of overturned. Uh, and Russian, this is when Russia annexed Crimea and sort of moved into the Donbass, um, sort of the, uh, the prequel to the unrest that's going on at the moment in Ukraine. Um, anyway, so all these protests were happening like, a couple of blocks away from our apartment. It was an exciting time. Um, And all of, all of your postings in the foreign service are like two to three years. So we were there for, I was there for three years and then we came back to the U S. It was great. It was a lot of fun. I did a lot of really good work. Uh, Once we got back to the U S it was difficult to find postings in the same place for me and David. So right. we were going to have to to go abroad again, and you have to go abroad again at a certain point. We were going to have to split up. At that point, though, we had like a – Roxanne was like two. Um, and so it was just becoming increasingly unacceptable for us to to be separated. So yeah. we took civil service jobs that would keep us in, the, in D.C. for a while. Okay. So you went from the foreign service to the civil service, but still in the state yep. – that's still State Department, right? Still State Department for okay. both of us, yeah. Um, so, but then you ditched your career at the State Department to go study at the That Peabody. is also true. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing a bit of a pattern here. Like, you, you, you start something, you get to a certain point, and then it's actually, this other thing is better. And, yeah. and, and honestly, knowing when to quit is a superpower. Well, great. So, <laughs> it's worked out for me. <laughs> right. So, so, what made you decide that studying at the Peabody was better than going to the State Department? Mostly, I think I was just getting bored at the State Department. Okay. I mean, and it's not like I was getting bored, and so I started fishing around for something to do. Music is something that I had been trying to do in an avocational sort of way the whole time. Um, and I was I had been getting a little bit frustrated because it was difficult to do music at a particularly high level or at a yeah, at a very high level. Um, while also having a full-time non-musical job and not a particularly high amount of expertise in music. Um, I was just sort of self-taught. I had, you know, all of my knowledge of music theory and things like that was just what I had managed to teach myself. Um, So as I was getting more and more bored at the State Department, I would find myself sort of wistfully looking at the websites of graduate programs in historical music um, and wistfully looking at the websites of ensembles that I might be able to join if I had more of a background in music and things like that. And so then during the pandemic, I don't know, I just kind of decided to go for it with a tremendous amount of support and encouragement from David. He, I don't think I would have I don't think that I would have been able to convince myself that I could do it if it weren't for him, both in terms of like being good enough and also in terms of like, am I going to financially ruin my family? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he, 
crunched a lot of numbers in a very reassuring way and was like, no, go for it, do it, do it. So he did. And I'm surprised. No one was more surprised than myself when I got in. Um, and so then I just jumped off the cliff and did it. That was probably, I mean, you asked what, what gave me the courage to leave my, my first graduate program in Slavic literature. And I think that that really didn't take a lot of courage because I had that off ramp. This felt more like jumping off of a cliff. Um, because even though I did get into a very good program, I was not fully convinced that I could hack it in this program. And then I was not fully convinced that I could hack it after the program as a musician, because I mean, so many talented musicians don't make it work. It's just really tricky. Yeah. Um, so that, that was much more of a leap of faith. Okay. And one, one which seems to have turned out pretty well. So far, so good. Yeah, okay. I had a wonderful experience at Peabody, and things are going pretty well now on the other side of it. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so, like, historical music is a bit like historical martial arts in that there's this thing people used to do, and there are mm-hmm. written records of it, but it's not, it's not an academic thing. It is a physical practice that people did, and which existed in time and in space, and once the performance is over, the music is gone. So, right. so you have the same sort of problem that we do of how, how do we recreate this and how do we know when we're getting it right? And right. one advantage we have, of course, is that if my interpretation of this particular parry uh, doesn't work and I keep getting hit in the head, I know there's something wrong with it. Whereas you, you could be making this god awful noise that is completely wrong, but without any mm-hmm. like objective getting smacked in the head when it's wrong, how do yeah. you know? So. How do you set about reconstructing historical music? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, the first thing you need to do is really just sort of immerse yourself in the music theory of the time and also just have a really solid grounding of modern, like uh, common practice era music theory, the music, the theory of the music that we're all used to hearing. Because what you will wind up doing is you will wind up recreating music in the way that you are used to, right? You will subconsciously sort of apply your own assumptions and your own understanding of music to a troubadour song from the 1100s, for instance. And if you know, if you know about old music theory and you know about contemporary music theory or common practice era music theory, you'll be able to tell when you're doing that. And you'll be able to kind of take a step back and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They weren't using thirds like that. Let's not strum tertian chords on a guitar under this song. That's probably not what they were doing. Um, they didn't have a rhythm section either. Well, I mean, they had, had, that's a good question. They had drums. Yeah, sure. They had dances. So they had rhythm, but they didn't like a lot of time in a a lot of this music, they didn't notate the music with any indication of rhythm. So that there's the question, like, was this sung rhythmically or was this sung in sort of a free flowing non-metrical sort of way? And there are so many questions that we just can't answer. And the only way to sort of get at an answer is to try things a bunch of different ways and see what sounds good, right? See what works. But unlike in swordplay, where you have a very objective, I got hit in the head, that doesn't work. I hit this guy in the head, that does work. Something might work to me, as in it sounds good to me, but it sounds good to a very different set of ears than it was originally intended right. for because I have grown up with this common practice era music. I am used to different things. So even when you get to a point where it's working, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it sounded. Uh, yeah, we do have that same thing is that, you know, if, uh, well, if, if I throw you on the ground in a particular way, that may be, it may work. I may be able to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because it worked doesn't mean that is exactly what was intended in this particular bit right. of the book. So, so things can work. Yeah, we do ways. get, we do get historical false positives. Something may be martial, may be effective, mm-hmm. but not actually be what the author intended in that particular moment. Right. So we have, yeah. we have a similar problem there. Um, but so for me, I think the, the goal for me and for a lot of, historically informed performers, I think, is not really try to get as close as possible, try to recreate the historical performance, but try to learn as much as you can about historical performance practice and about historical music theory so that you can recreate something that could plausibly have been that performance. And in so doing, you are creating something completely new. Um, To me, the value of 
of recreating this historical performance, these historical performances is, is unearthing new ways of very old ways of doing things that are new to us, mm. right? If we are immersed in common practice era music, we're going to write a lot more music that sounds exactly like everything that's been written. You see this in the SCA. The reason that so many people write songs that sound like folk songs and Boy Scout songs is that that's what they hear all the time. And so that's just what comes out. That's what music sounds like to them. Yeah. 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 And so when you, when you make the decision to immerse yourself in something very different, like 12th century troubadour music, then you are, you are giving yourself access to a, to an entirely new toolbox. Um, And then you can bring that into your own music. If you're writing music, for the SCA, you know, you might be writing in English, you might be writing about like some king who king in big air quotes who lives down the street from you. Um, but you can bring those, those new modalities into your music and your music is going to sound super cool because it's not the exact same thing that everybody's always hearing. Okay. Or if you are doing music for a concert, it's going to sound interesting and fresh and compelling. Um, or if you are if you're a composer and you're just trying to write something brand new and awesome, you can, you know, write something in Phrygian mode or you can play around with non-metrical writing or uh, rhythmic modes or something like that and infuse your music with something that is that works but is not the same thing that everybody's used okay. to hearing. Now, most people listening do not have any training in historical music. So I'm going to ask you to define yes. a few terms that you've been throwing around okay. <laughs> for the benefit of the, um, of the, uh, the lay listener. Okay. First thing, um, yes. what is common practice era precisely? I think I know what it means, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm, you know, I may be thinking of something completely different. So if you think about classical music, that's basically common practice era music. It's like classical, romantic, um, Mozart, Beethoven, Wagner, and I. It also kind of I don't know. I people might dispute this, but I think it also sort of encompasses folk music and some kind of contemporary pop music. It's just it's it's built on tertian chords, which means you've got you. Yeah. That's another. Yeah, yeah I've got it written down. So it's like <laughs> it's like do mi so bum. You've got your chord right. Um, and everything is sort of is sort of written with this scaffolding of chords underneath it that kind of make the music make okay. sense. Um, so basically, common practice era music is the type of music. It's the way that we're used to music right. working. Okay, and it dates from sort of 18th century onwards. Okay. Yeah. Roughly, okay. Yeah. Um, and what is this Phrygian something or other? Ah, Phrygian. Actually, so, I can't read my own handwriting, so there's a. Fr- no, it's fine. <laughs> Um, we are used to um, music being in a major key or a minor key, yeah. right? So major is like do re mi fa so la ti do. Minor is do re mi fa so le ti do. It sounds kind of dark. It sounds yeah. spooky. Um, in the Middle Ages and Renaissance periods, you had like eight of those scales, right? And so Phrygian is one of them. Phrygian is the gnarliest. And I might have got my keyboard right okay. here. So I'm going to just like play Seriously. it real quick. So it's Whoa. like it's like the minor key on the minor scale on crack, right? It's like very crunchy. Starts off with like a semitone, like like very very small interval, um, and so that's something that like people hardly ever write in Phrygian today. It sounds crazy, but Hildegard of Bingen, that was her favorite mode. She wrote in Phrygian all the time, and it sounds super cool. Okay, and so. What's the difference between mode and key? Um, yeah, that is, that's a very complicated <laughs> Sorry. question. Um, a mode, <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. A mode is really like a scale. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I might take a pass on that one because it's really <laughs> difficult to explain. Um, think, you can think of a mode as a scale. Um, and a, when we talk about a key, we're really talking about either major or minor yeah, I mean, as a, my understanding um, of key is it's got this many sharps or flats, and so and so you know yeah. what key you're playing. Like G major is a yeah. particular 
key. But that's also to me, in my head, because I'm a trumpet player, or I'm not really, but I've, I have been a trumpet player. Um, <laughs> that is also a scale. And so yes. the, there's a, so between if you've got the key and the scale, mm-hmm. how is a piece written in a particular key different from a piece written in a particular mode? I think there are a couple, I'm, I'm thinking of modes as they were used in the Middle Ages. And um, there are a couple of differences. One, these days when we talk about a key, we're referring to major or minor. Those are two of the eight modes, right? That's really uh, and it can be okay. So okay, so so major be, major is a mode, like, minor is a mode, and within any given mode, you may have different yes. keys. Okay. Yes, and then you can put that mode and you can transpose that mode. You can have like D major or G major right. or F major, right? Which you can also do with like Phrygian and Dorian and Lydian and all of those other modes, but um, but. In the Middle Ages, no one no one would have said, ah, this is written in G Phrygian, because they didn't really have the concept of fixed pitch, of right? If you looked if you looked at a piece of music, you might see a C clef that tells you this line of this line on the staff is a C. But that doesn't really they didn't really mean C as in like this note is always a C. Like bum is a C, maybe. I don't know, I'm just pulling a note out of the air. Um, like if you if you saw an A, A did not mean 440 hertz like it does now. It meant it meant ah yeah that's the first note in the Ionian scale right mm. or like this is the this is yeah. Um, so they weren't really thinking about transposing in a specific uh, way. They G Phrygian wouldn't have meant anything. You just sing Phrygian in a comfortable key that works with all the instruments you have, and then that's okay. Phrygian, right? Um, so, yeah, so it makes yeah. sense to not define them that specifically when you don't have a standard. I mean, no one was producing standard tuning forks back then, so you had you had no way of establishing right. standard pitch. Right, a standard pitch is they had organs, which you weren't going to be tuning organs all the time. So you would just tune your instruments to right. like the town organ, right? And in the Baroque period, when they start to t- talk about uh, like standard pitch, you have different standard, you have different pitch standards, radically different pitch standards in different parts of Europe um, because of whatever major organ was. Right. And, and how the it same is tuned. true with clocks. Like um, you would, you mm-hmm. would, ju- actually Ken Monsheen did his PhD on, the ringing of bells in medieval Paris and about, yeah, yeah it's, it's oh, amazing. Great. It's all about basically how these different churches would ring for Vespers or whatever at their own particular times. And this guild mm-hmm. of, I don't know, m- m- people who made armored mail, for example, they would have, mm-hmm. their apprentices would knock off when this particular church rang this particular hour, but it had, it wasn't supposed mm-hmm. to be an objective sort of, you know, Swiss chronometer, uh, absolute sort of measurement right. of um, objective time. It is just mm-hmm. so that, you know, everyone understands that it is now that time because this particular clock has made this particular, or this particular church has rung these particular bells. Um, right. And so, you know, the, the, the notion of like standardized time didn't come about until the railways. Because that, that way you could get mm-hmm. a clock that had been set in London, for example, and taken on the train to yep. Edinburgh, and it would still be telling approximately correct time. So they could they could set the clock in uh-huh. Edinburgh based on the clock in London. Um, right, yeah. And so that's, that's a relatively modern idea. So what we're talking about is mm-hmm. um, the exact pitch Will be would will vary depending on mm-hmm. what is around you at the time, and it will vary from place to place. So the standard right. the standard key yeah. for singing a song in in I don't know Paris might be different to the standard key for singing that same song in mm-hmm. I don't know Florence. Okay, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, standardization is a is a weird thing, <laughs> and we just be, we just get so used to it that it's it's kind of weird to think that this wasn't standardized. Uh-huh. Um, okay, now. Uh, you've been referring quite a bit to 12th century troubadour music. Okay. Yes. A troubadour is someone who goes from place to place singing songs, correct? No? Not okay. necessarily. Um, so, yeah. So the troubadours were a, this is sort of like a musical movement that happened in the south of France uh, from like 
the year roughly 1000 through like the end of the like in the 1200s um and it was they wrote in occitan predominantly so not in french everybody thinks they're french but ah, they weren't really um and they were a pretty diverse set of people i mean you did have people who would they would sort of uh be musicians who traveled from court to court and you know, making their money that way. But you also had people who were sort of stationed at one court and paid very well by a nobleman there. You had people who were actually the the nobleman, right? Um, you would have like a count who would be considered a troubadour because he wrote, uh, wrote amazing poetry and set it to music. Uh, you had some monks, uh, you had some noble women who were troubadours. Uh, we have a, I think this is the largest body of poetry that exists from medieval Europe by women is the poetry of the trobarets or the, the female troubadours. Um, so it, it wasn't just sort of like wandering minstrels, although there were some wandering minstrels. Uh, it was, it was all kinds of people. Okay. So what defines a particular piece of music or poetry as troubadour? Um, basically coming from that period during that time, um, sort of South of France written in Occitan, uh, sort of in the couple of centuries surrounding the 12th century. Um, and there are some sort of distinguishing features in the poetry, right? It tended to be syllabic. Um, so you wouldn't have a regular meter like da dun da dun da dun da dun da dun You would just have like, this line always has 10 syllables, who knows where the stress will fall, but it's going to have 10 syllables. Um, and they wrote, it was strophic. They wrote in verses. So it wasn't like just, it, it wasn't like Beowulf where it's just like a wall of text. You had verses um, and set to music. We don't, they don't all have surviving melodies, but we think okay. that they were. I know, just because I'm always looking out for the listeners on this show. Cause you know, they are, they are my people. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any chance we could get a clip mm-hmm. of some 12th century troubadour music from you to stick at the end of this episode? So people know, know what we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not going to like sing anything for you today because I'm getting over a cold, but I could definitely Thank you. send. Excellent. <laughs> okay. So we'll, we'll stick that on at the end after yeah. the sort of, <laughs> So, so, so people who want to listen to some 12th century troubadour music can do that. That'd be brilliant. Thank you. All right. Now, awesome. we, we've been talking a lot about like historical music and you know, throwing around words like mm-hmm. strophic and Phrygian and whatnot. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I wish everybody understood how cool it was. But I also, um, I think that some people have the idea that we, when they go to hear a, a historical, a performance of historical music, they're going to hear what was the way it sounded in the 12th century. And I wish people understood that we're never really going to know what it sounded like. We can do our best. But as a result, what you are hearing is something that, in a sense, is much cooler. It's the performers that you're listening to are sort of co-composers of this music, along like collaborating with these long-dead, long-dead composers and songwriters to create something that by necessity is new, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's like a new composition every time, um, and I think that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I also I think that's also true for historical martial arts. Like, yeah, we are, absolutely. Even if we get the choreography of an action exactly the same, and I think mm-hmm. that is possible because some of these sources give us really precise mm-hmm. instructions. Um, we're still coming at it with 21st century nutrition, 21st century healthcare, 21st century right. ideas of health and safety, uh-huh. 21st century ideas of, of what swords are and how they work based on mm-hmm. the 20th century movies we've been watching. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's, it's never going to be the same because we can't create the entire context in which it originally existed. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you take it out of its context, it has to change. Um, and so that really bothers some people. It doesn't actually bother me at all. I would mm-hmm. much rather be actually creating my own new thing than just copying things that other people have done. Yeah. Um, so other than your own work, obviously, mm-hmm. um, can you think of any depictions of historical music that listeners might have come across that you would think worth their time? Yeah. Um, so... 
Benjamin Bagby and his ensemble Sequencia are great. And one of the things that's so cool about them is they do really old music, like really old music. A lot of a lot of early music ensembles uh, specialize in Baroque music or Renaissance music. There are uh, comparatively few ensembles that specialize in medieval music. Um, but Sequencia does not just medieval music, but they're trying to like recreate, you know, Viking and old English music and old Norse music, stuff that wasn't written down, right? Like it's one thing for me to take a troubadour manuscript that like, I don't know what the rhythm sounded like, but I'm going to do my best and kind of co-compose something. Um, But they're taking things that like you've got the text and you know that it was sung and you have an idea of what instruments might've been used, but you don't have any music that was written down so they are just straight up composing music to go with this but they're doing so in a way that's very deeply informed by the right the writings on music theory that existed surrounding the text that they're using so it's really cool and they're also just really good at it and it sounds great um uh and there are, you know, there are some other ensembles in in Europe that are doing really good things. There's uh, Magister Petros in Spain. Um, there's, um, oh, here in the U.S., there is an ensemble called Alchemy based in New York. Uh, there's another ensemble called Trobar that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there used to be an ensemble here in D.C. called Aya, And they're, they haven't, like, completely folded, but they're much less active than they used to be. Um, okay. So speaking of ensembles, what is Falsa Musica? Oh, so Falsa Musica was sort of a pandemic project. Um, okay. And it was in the middle of the pandemic, you know, choral singing was like one of the big things that was supposed to be very dangerous because you are, well, I mean, it's... Well, you're breathing, oh, you're breathing at each other. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and the way that you breathe when you're singing... You are, by design, taking the air as deep into your lungs as you possibly can, and then you're expelling it with great force at each other. So, yeah, it was a little bit sketchy. Okay. So, so, so dangerous from a viral perspective. Yes, yes, okay. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so everybody was housebound. Choral singing was not happening. And so I, it occurred to me that one of the f- – singing with other people on Zoom is terrible because there's yeah. lag and you just – it doesn't work. But it occurred to me that one of the few uh, repertoires that does kind of lend itself to online singing with each other is medieval monophonic music, because a lot of um, a lot of people think that one of the accompaniment techniques was sing the music over a drone, um, which is just sort of like a held note. Um, and so we would get on me and a number of people would get online. We would learn a piece of music. Um, from the Middle Ages. The, and when I say monophonic, that means it just has a melody. Like, all we know is just, like, one melody. There's no harmonies. There's no, like, four-part Okay. Step, just a melody. Uh, I was going to ask. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we would we'd get online. We would learn this piece together. We would practice it sort of on mute. And then we would sort of take turns um, droning for each other while somebody sang the melody over it. And we would sort of split the melody up. So everybody ah. would get a chance to sort of sing and be accompanied and accompany. So um, the, the drone, things. It was fun. The, mm-hmm. if the drone doesn't have a rhythm, they don't have to come in on time. So the right. lag doesn't matter. Exactly. Ah, yes. Okay. And right, it's very right, historically okay. perfor- er, informed and yet on zoom. And yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was fun. It was a lot of okay. fun. Uh, do you still do it? No, now we've all sort of, I mean, we all still keep in touch, but we're all singing with real people in real time now. Okay. <laughs> because... uh, which, which sort of brings me on to my next question. Uh-huh. So how do you make a living as a historical musician? Right. Um, well, I'm not at the point where I can say that I'm making a living exclusively as a historical musician. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of musicians who are historical musicians never get to the point where they're making music exclusively with historical music or where they're making a living exclusively with historical music. Certainly some do. Um, but I make a living through a combination of um, teaching about historical music, teaching just straight up voice lessons, you know, mm-hmm. like a lot of my voice students are singing like Broadway stuff or like opera or things like that. Um, and performing, a combination of historical music and whatever other people want me to perform. So like I have a church job where, you know, I'm a section leader 
in a local church choir. And so I get paid to go to rehearsals and church services every Sunday. And sometimes we sing like some tutor anthems, but a lot of it is like not remotely historical. Um, and you know, I'll do solo gigs, which may or may not be historical. I recently, uh, sang the mezzo solo in a beautiful, beautiful Requiem Mass, um, by, a living composer, Gary Davison. And it was just gorgeous, not historical, but it was great. Um, so, you know, it's what they call like a portfolio career where you don't have a job, you have a bunch of jobs. Yeah. Some of them will be historically oriented and some of them won't, but you know, they're all fun. Yeah. I, honestly, it's a bit like that teaching historical martial arts. Yeah. Really. I mean, I, sometimes I'm teaching in person, you know, regular seminars or individual mm-hmm. lessons or whatever. And then there's writing books about it, either academic books or practical books. And then mm-hmm. there's the online courses, which are sort of practical historical martial arts mm-hmm. through that way. So it's closer to being always historical martial arts, but I have actually also started uh, mentoring some people who want to make a living doing related things like mm-hmm. for example stage combat oh nice and they are hiring me to kind of provide accountability and suggestions and guidance or whatever for creating their business again teaching an obscure skill uh-huh. um, so other than the specifics of the skill itself the structures are all the same mm-hmm. like you know you, you teach a person and you create products like online courses or books or whatever else mm-hmm. to to make money, but also to generate other work and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. so yes, I mean, yeah, portfolio career is actually probably a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, you've not finished your Slavic studies degree, and right. you quit the State Department. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're, you're actually quite good at having an idea of, I want to do something different, and then acting on it. I guess right? so. <laughs> so what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Um, so my answer might be a bit of a cheater answer because I'm starting, I'm in the very early stages of starting to act on it. And that is founding an ensemble that's going to, uh, focus on medieval music. Okay. Um, it's called Ignota. Um. What does that mean? Yeah. So there's a whole story there. Um. Go ahead. So Hildegard of Bingen, very famous 12th century nun composer of crazy cool music. Um, she was an abbess, so she was sort of like in charge of a convent, two convents actually. And she, because she's crazy, invented a language for her, the nuns in her convents to use, um, to sort of let, I don't know, it was like a team building thing. I don't know. Uh, and it was called, it was called the lingua ignota, which means the unknown language. And right. so my ensemble is called Ignota, sort of as a nod to Hildegard, who's an incredibly influential uh, composer for me. Um, but also because what excites me about this music is uncovering unknown and unfamiliar ways of making music and sounds that might be unknown or unfamiliar to listeners. Um, and then sort of bringing them to the audiences and saying, here, isn't this cool? Okay. Um, so that's why Ignota. Okay, and can you give us an example of such a such a sound? Um, well, it's sort of like what we were talking about with modes, right? The Phrygian mode sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that uh, monophonic song, so song that's just a melody, can sound good with absolutely no accompaniment. So there's a there's a school of thought, um, sort of uh, the main proponent of whom is Christopher Page. Um, that high style troubadour songs were sung with absolutely no accompaniment, no instruments, mm-hmm. just the singer. That's it. Um, and some people think that this is also true of liturgical church music. So like what Hildegard would have written, right? No accompaniment, just the voice. Um, and I don't know, this isn't, this is to me a compelling argument, but not a conclusive argument. I feel perfectly free to apply musical accompaniment to troubadour songs, but it also sounds really good without accompaniment. So I do it that way too sometimes. And so a, as an example, when I was at Peabody there, we do, the voice department would have departmental recitals, I think like once a month where voice majors could volunteer to perform for the rest of the department. And you, you go out there and you're, you're there with your collaborative pianist and you both bow and pianist starts playing and you start singing and that's what everybody expects to happen. So one time I decided to sing some Hildegard and I just walked out on stage, 
by myself and everybody was like, oh no, something's gone terribly wrong. Where's the <laughs> and then I just started singing this crazy Phrygian melody, right? And everyone was like, oh. So it was like completely not what they expected. It was completely different than what anyone else was doing. Um, and it was really cool. Like, it was great. Um, so that's, yeah, kind of just in a different way of doing things than people are used to. Okay, so it's an ensemble though, right? So it's not yeah, always going to be, be a, it's not always going to be a voice on its own. So yeah, what 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 kind of music will you be producing? Right, so um, it's going to be a combination of accompanied and unaccompanied music. So I've got I've got a couple of instrumentalists. I've got a really wonderful recorder player. I've got a really wonderful string player. I play the harp. Um, and then I have sort of a growing roster of incredibly talented singers. So we'll be doing some pieces that have instrumental accompaniment. We'll be doing some pieces that are strictly instrumental. We'll be doing some pieces that are just voices singing together. And then we'll have the occasional um, piece that's just one person performing by themselves. Um, so the idea is that no one will be performing in like in a given program, no one's going to be performing in every single piece. Yep. Everybody gets to like sit down and drink some water every now and then. Um, but there will be a lot of different combinations. Cool. Your ensemble, you're going to make like actual live concerts, I presume. Yes. yes. Um, are you also going to be like recording stuff, running a Patreon, stuff like that? Um, we will be making some recordings. Um, right now we are, I'm applying for some grants to help us make kind of just a couple of really early recordings to use sort of for publicity purposes. Um, and eventually, I don't know if we're going to have a Patreon. Um, I am kind of in the early stages of planning a Kickstarter campaign, um, to fund early recordings and concert series. Um, and if that comes to be before this is published, I will shoot you a link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even even after it's published. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Shoot, shoot, shoot Absolutely. me a link, and and I will I will blast it out to the mailing list because you know our our audiences overlap considerably. I think. Uh huh. Like people who think it's cool to recreate ancient skills. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so like my last question, mm -hmm. um, the million dollar question, literally. <laughs> um, somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical music or martial arts or whatever some historical practice mm -hmm. worldwide how would you spend the money where do you think it needs to go i so i was thinking about this there are there are some scholarships and programs and things like that that exist to help people with tuition be it like affording to study at a school or you know lord baltimore's challenge that david runs has some scholarships to help people, you know, afford to come without getting a break on like admission, registration, whatever they're calling it, mm -hmm. the money you pay to get in. I would like to, I would take that money and I would fund some kind of scholarship fund that not only covers that sort of like tuition and registration cost, but any sort of incidental cost, um, related to the study of swordplay. So that could be equipment. Um, hey, why, why swordplay? Why not music? Oh, because the thing you sent me said swordplay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, because, that's just because, you know, yeah. I have like a template of questions oh, okay, okay, and, okay. and I didn't quite edit it as no, well as it okay. should have been edited. That's um, okay. So, so, yeah, by all means, historical martial arts. But, <laughs> Here's how but I'm you don't, your field. But, um, <laughs> but, but I mean, you told me you don't do swords very much anymore. So yeah, well, the reason for that though is that I, you know, I got to the point where I didn't, you know, I I had gotten interested in music, and I didn't have enough hours in the day to do both to do two skills to pursue two skills that require regular frequent practice in order to just maintain and tread water much less yeah. get anywhere right um but if i had if i'd had a nanny i probably would have right okay so my idea would be and i don't know i mean this you could apply this to music students too is to fund some sort of some sort of fund to help people with those sort of if i could throw money at this thing in my life then I could afford to do this thing. Um, 
to be frank, one of the reasons that I was able to quit my State Department job and go to Peabody is that I'm married. I was married and still am married to somebody who still worked for the State Department and had a good job. And so we had a financial cushion um, yeah. that we could I could jump off that cliff. And a lot of people don't. Um, but even if you're not jumping off of a cliff, you know, it's it's hard to justify going out to study swordplay every week if you don't have childcare or um, if you have to pay extra for equipment that's going to fit you because it's harder to find. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about how to how to encourage more diversity and participation, both in swordplay and in historical music, but also just classical music in general. Um, and I think that it's it's not just a matter of access in like, am I allowed in this space? Can I afford to, can I afford this program? But can I, can I organize the rest of my life in such a way that I can participate? Um, so what do you think the main barriers are? I can only speak for myself as a okay. somewhat privileged white American woman. Um, it, for me, it was time. Um, particularly once we had a kid, uh, it was just how much time can I spend away from home without being a burden on my co-parent, right? Um, and David is an incredibly involved father. He is, oh my God, he leaned in so much when I was in, um, when I was in grad school. It, he's been great. Um, but when we were both working for the State Department, um, back before the pandemic when working from home was not really a thing, it, it was always sort of a, a negotiation like who gets to be away this night who gets to be away this night how many nights for each because we both had things that we wanted to pursue and there just weren't enough hours in the day to go around and there just wasn't there wasn't enough money to throw at babysitters to make it work right um so for me it was really it was a matter of time right and, and the way the money solves the time problem is by hiring other people to do the things that otherwise you have to do yeah, you can, you know, throw it at a babysitter or throw it at a maid service or throw it at, you know, one of those meal delivery services so you don't have to spend as much time cooking. Um, I mean, time is money, right? If you have money, you can throw it at something that's going to save you time. That's just kind of the way it is. Okay. So just thinking like the, the barriers to entry for someone who is who has little time we're talking like it's quite inefficient to hire a babysitter for one person to attend, for example, an event. Mm -hmm. It'd be more efficient maybe to have a crash at the event itself. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, is that such a thing with historical music? Do you have like weekend events and things that, that would benefit from this fictional million dollars being spent for crash services? Maybe. I mean, like regular rehearsals and things like that, I don't think that would you know, you might have one person in your ensemble who needs a babysitter. But there are, um, you know, there are early music festivals that might take a week or two or a weekend. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, yeah, it's entirely possible. I think one of the, uh, one of the, one of the barriers there, one of the things that I'm sure makes people reluctant to do this is just the liability of like being in charge of somebody's kid, right? Um, okay. I think that... I would imagine you would need to get all kinds of insurance and background checks and things like that that might sure. make it less efficient than we might imagine. So you need what you need is the Manaheim in Lido, right? Which is an organization in Finland. Uh-huh. Which is like okay, Manaheim was um the head of the Finnish army. He he was also president of Finland at one point. Mm -hmm. He is the basically the architect of Finland's defense against Russia during the Second World War. Uh-huh. Right? So he's like the closest sort of figurehead type person. Like as Churchill is to Britain, Manaheim is to Finland, but more so because uh, Finland, Finland as an independent nation has a much shorter history and he was right mm -hmm. there at the beginning of it. Yeah. Right? Um, and Lito means like union. And it doesn't sound like a particularly like child-related thing, but actually what they do is they provide qualified babysitters for mm -hmm. parents of young children so they can do things like 
get back to work or That's whatever right. else. Yeah. 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 Finland is the promised land of having <laughs> children. <It's laughs> so, so basically what we're talking about actually is using this money to set up the American equivalent of the Manaheim in Lito. <laughs> that would be great. That would be good, wouldn't it? Okay, yeah. yeah. That's, that's an interesting use of the money. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, yeah, Alex. It's been lovely to see you again. Yeah, take care. And now the historical music that I promised. This is Amour Outre-Tard Ne Suis-Prix, attributed to Blanc de Castile, who was Queen of France around the beginning of the 13th century. This is Voice and Harp. And this is Ecce Tempus Gaudii, an instrumental setting of a 12th century song with just the harp. And this is Gloria Sanctorum, a 14th century chant from Ireland with voice and harp. Christus voluptatis stilu. 
And this is O Fromdens Virga, another Hildegard piece, just because it's pretty. This is what Alex is saying. Voice and Symphonia, which is an early hurdy-gurdy. And finally, Race Glorios, a 12th century troubadour piece by Giro de Bornel, which is just voice. Oh, 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alex. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And of course, I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next time when I'll be talking to Jonathan Bluestein, who is a martial arts teacher in various Chinese arts, and an author who is currently working on a book that will include an overview of historical martial arts. He approached me through a mutual friend to pick my brains about how historical martial arts schools are operated, and I thought the conversation might turn into a useful episode for you. And I have a few questions for him too. Make sure you don't miss it. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. And as always, if you've particularly enjoyed this show, please do share it with someone who you think might enjoy it too. It really does help. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a marvellous holiday season and I will see you in 2024.